And when our babies are born, it's not that we're dissatisfied with them the way they are, but we began to watch immediately for signs of growth. He held my finger, smiled at me, and looked at him coo. You know, we, we all, all the way. And if they get about six months old and can't sit up alone, we get worried. I, I remember my, our only son, big fat fella, was 15 months old before he got up and walked. And I was really getting worried about him because all four of his sisters walked at nine months. And see, that's, that's what our whole, their whole life through, we, we are watching for signs of growth and uh, grow. Is also very important in God's sake. That's what God is looking for. Signs of growth. Just like we want our children to grow and to develop and to become responsible citizens. And we know eventually they will go their own ways and they will have children and be watching for them how they grow and develop. And so our Heavenly Father looks on us. That word grow. Two o'clock this morning, the Lord said to me that word, grow. Let me read you how interested God is in the growth of his church. It's a beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm beginning reading with verse 11 of Ephesians 4. Talks about what Jesus did, the plan he has made for us. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, these are all gifts from God for a purpose, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, now there's that word again, perfect, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, we're supposed to grow up, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. God bless you. You may be seated. I remember as a young pastor's wife, I got hung up on that word perfect. It, it really worried me. You know, uh, 36 times in the New Testament, it talks about being perfect and God wants his children to be perfect and uh, the disciples said, the Lord establish you and make you perfect. And there's so many different scriptures about perfection. And, and I got hung up on it. I mean, I just, it just floored me. There's, I know me. There's no way I'll ever be perfect. And it seemed like a goal too far to attain. And God, in his mercy, sent along the preacher that uh, I respected and admired very much. He was the one that was willing to play church with two little 11-year-old girls. And both of us got the Holy Ghost <laughs> during that play church session. And God sent him along while we were pastoring our first church. Oh, brother, I'm so glad to see you. Would you please explain what the Bible means? New Testament, the epistles is full of it. Perfect. Be ye perfect. All for the perfection of the saints and the perfection of the church. I don't understand it. He said, well, it, it's really quite simple. And he just got up out of the char chair. He was in and walked over to the window. And we lived on the edge of town, and there's a big cornfield out there. And it was that time of the year, and the corn was just about this high. He said, hmm, looks like some nice corn growing out there. Uh, would you say they've got a good stand? I said, and didn't realize what I was saying. Yes, perfect. He said, uh, well, go get us some corn for lunch. Oh, it hasn't reached that stage yet. He said, but it's perfect as far as it has grown. <laughs> he said, and when it grows higher 
and even getting some tassels on the top of it, you're still not going to get any corn for dinner. But it's perfect as far as it has grown. We make a mistake trying to judge, no, not judge yourself, but measuring ourselves. We pick out somebody and then we measure ourselves alongside them. Paul said it's not wise to measure. Now, we should judge ourselves according to the word of God. Because if we judge ourselves, then he won't have to. But we've got the word here as our measure. And I want to talk to you this morning about how to grow in God. I enjoyed this message when the Lord gave it to me this morning. I, I like never went back to sleep. <laughs> it, was, it was just so interesting to think about it. You see, uh, when you have to get born to get into the family of God. I mean, you can join other churches, but you can't join this one. You have to be born in it. <laughs> and you come to an altar, you repent of your sin, then you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then you are filled with his spirit according to his promise. You're born of the water and of the spirit, as Jesus told Nicodemus, and then you are a newborn in the family of God. Now, you may not be what God eventually wants. You won't be what God wants you to be because he doesn't want you to remain that cute little baby. He wants you to grow. (laughs) I had a friend in Africa who had a daughter 31 years old who mentally was only three because at three she got a terrible brain injury. And so here is a 31-year-old body with a mind and the mannerisms and the abilities of a three-year-old. And that's sad. And this happens sometimes in the family of God because those who claim to know him, those who think that they are a part of his family, don't grow. You know, uh, the children's doctors will tell you that children hit a growing level sometimes. They hit a level where they, you know, I remember my son when he got there. I mean, one year after we bought him new clothes, we had to give them all away and buy new clothes. He took a growing spell, and he just grew. And God loves it when we take a growing spell. And I'm going to tell you exactly how this morning. There are some steps. And the first one is found over here in the book of 1 Peter. If you'll turn with me there. Let's just read a verse there that makes it all very clear. Uh, There's some things that you have to put aside, and there's things you have to put on. Chapter 2 of verse Peter. I'll just read the first three verses. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. You see, it is so serious if we do not have a deep desire. You show a baby on the bottle, that bottle that's hungry. Man, he has a spasm. <laughs> he, he, he just can't wait. Little legs are kicking and hands are flying and reaching and, and yelling if you wait too long because he's got such a desire for that sin. And if we had more of a desire for the sincere milk of the word, we could grow out of babyhood. I read in the original verses that I read, be no more children. Push this way and pull that way by strong winds and doctrines. And one place Paul said, I, I couldn't feed you meat. You, you just had to keep on with milk. Well, God's got milk and he's got meat both in this book. <laughs> hallelujah, hallelujah. And, and he has made me understand that you've got to certain things that you're going, I'm going to tell you step by step. Step by step. And number one is get hungry for that word. You know, uh, we live in an age and a generation that if you can just push the right button or move the right lever or pull the right cord, you can make a lot of things happen. But spiritually, there's instant coffee, there's instant tea, and instant this and instant that, but there's no instant salvation. You have got to grow in it just like a baby develops and grows. And you start with that hunger, that deep desire for 
the, uh, that a baby has for that milk of the word. And then you began to grow. And I'm going to mention some steps here. Number one, now you start out in this thing by repenting. But don't ever think you got through with it that night when you repented, that day whenever you repented. You've got to learn to do two things before you ever grow. One's repent and the other one is forgive. Now, you see, uh, David was a man used of God. He was called beloved by God's heart. He's a man after God's own heart. But David made mistakes. He made some serious mistakes. But one thing David learned was how to repent. And don't ever think that you are through repenting when you make your first effort at it. As long as you live, if you grow, you're going to learn to repent. You've got to learn to repent of thoughts that shouldn't be in your mind. You've got to repent of an evil thought. First time I, when I was just starting out and I knelt by the side of a woman that I admired and respected and she was a role model for me and I heard her say, Lord, forgive my evil thoughts, I thought, Oh, there's no hope for me. I mean, <laughs> if that woman is good as she is and as beautiful and as perfect as I thought she was, if she has evil thoughts, where do I come in at? But you see, my friend had learned what all of us better learn. You've got to learn to repent. Now, we, we will do this. We make a mistake or we think something we shouldn't think and then we make a, de a mental decision. I won't do that again, but you will. As sure as you do not repent, you will make the same mistake again. Uh, uh, they, they say a donkey never falls in the same hole twice. <laughs> it's an, uh, that's a proverb of Africa. Uh, well, some of us uh, are not that smart. <laughs> you know, we, we, we'll just keep falling in the same old hole unless we do a good job of repenting. And you're going to make mistakes. Sometimes we get disgusted with ourselves because we are not perfect. But do you know what perfection really means? It means spiritual maturity. It means growing up. That's what perfection is. Just as that little corn was perfect this far, you can be perfect in God's sight as far as you have gone as long as you keep growing. It's when you stop growing that the trouble comes. And so in order to grow, you have got to learn to forgive. Now forgiveness is also one of the basic things. Uh, you see, I know a lot of people that are stunted spiritually because they have never learned to forgive. And it's so basic. I'll never forget when my mother-in-law and father-in-law, my father-in-law got the Holy Ghost at 92. They don't say there's no hope. They're too old. I mean, 92. And he was a sinner. All of us daughter-in-law stayed far from him as we could get. And I often wish that I could have had something to plug up my ears and Blot out his language, block it out. Uh, but uh, that old man at 92 got the best case of the Holy Ghost and just became the sweetest old darling you ever saw in your life. I mean, there, there, there's hope in Jesus Christ. Don't, don't ever forget because God, uh, and, and to see a baby 92-year-old year old was really something, a baby in Christ, and that's what he was, a baby in Christ, and that was wonderful. You see, your physical age is not what matters, what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your spiritual age. And I'm not your judge. God is your judge. And you are not your own judge as to how far you have developed. When I thought I was really doing bad, I found out it wasn't so bad after all. And when I thought I was really doing good, I found out I'd missed the mark. But when my, my father-in-law got the Holy Ghost, my mother and father-in-law had been separated for 10 years. And she had a peace bond against him. He had to stay on one side of the river and she lived on the other. And all of it was over going to church. He fought her all the time over going to church. God bless that darling mother-in-law of mine. I've had some other problems in my life, but I had the sweetest mother-in-law in the world. I looked forward to heaven to seeing my mother-in-law again. She was a doll. But when she couldn't believe that Fletch could change that much, I mean, it just didn't seem reasonable to her that just all of a sudden now, she said at 92, He's going to change. And uh, so uh, Fletch said, called us in and said, the children, I want me and your mama to get back together again. And they never divorced. He, just, he was just so hard to live with and fought back and so ugly until finally she just had to uh, get a peace bond against him to have peace at all. Uh, and, but he's changed 
granny. We all called her granny. all called him grandpa. All the in-laws and outlaws, and even the kids did too. Uh, and I, I said, Granny, Grandpa's changed. She said, not that much. Not at his age. I can't believe it. And uh, my husband said there, he said, Mom, can you say the, 20, the, the Lord's Prayer? Do you ever say the Lord's Prayer? She said, oh, yes, 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer. I know by memory. I, I can say both of those. He said, say the Lord's Prayer for me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Hallelujah. <laughs> and as she began to get close to that part. <laughs> Give us this day our daily bread. You know, it's all, it's all in there. But forgive us our trespasses as. And she got that far, and she said, and it was her little byword, she said, oh, sheep. <laughs> And my husband winked at me and left, brave man. He, he wanted me to finish it up. And so I said, you see, Granny, if God has forgiven you and you want to hold on to your forgiveness, you've got to forgive Grandpa. That's the way it is. Right. It's there. It not only talks about our daily bread. He talks about forgiveness. You have got to forgive But Sister Freeman, you don't know what they did. Well, it couldn't be any worse than the example we have set for us. As they were busy murdering him, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we're all still alive, so you haven't been killed yet. So no matter what you have gone through. But we're so easy, this human flesh is so easy to say, I'll never forgive. Do you know that it only takes one person with an unforgiving heart to block revival in a church? A lack of forgiveness not only brings back all of your guilt, then God holds it against you, but no matter what they have done, you have got to forgive. That is a part of growing up in him. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And uh, someone said, but I, I've tried to forgive and I can't. Well, then pray about it. Lord, help me to forgive. I must forgive. I had such an unforgiving spirit against my father. My father not only left my mother with five little boys between the ages of a year old and ten years old, but he deliberately cheated her out of her share of the ranch that they jointly owned in New Mexico with the help of a crooked lawyer. I was standing there and watching it done, and it was done so cleverly my mother signed the papers that she would get her hat and the lawyer knocked over a bottle of ink. He said, well, here, Mrs. Eastis, just sign this fresh copy and I will write it all out again just as it was. But when he wrote it all out again, my dad got it all and my mother got nothing. And I knew how she struggled. I knew how she had to live with her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law thought that two slices enough was, of bread was enough for anybody. And when bread was all there was, those growing boys... Wanted some more bread. I watched them go barefooted in the snow. And a deep, unforgiving spirit got took hold of me against my father. And when I saw him, he walked up to me and called me the family name. All my family called me Sis. And I said, don't say Sis to me. I had a father and I loved him, but something happened to him. I don't know what, where he is and I don't know who you are. And I turned on my heel and walked away. Now I'm going to go to Africa and try to win souls for Jesus? No matter what he did to my mother, no matter how he made my little brothers suffer because of his deceit and his evil life, I had to come to the point to forgive my father. We got to Africa. And here, the last time I saw my dad, before I went, that's what I told him. And I got to Africa, and I said, God, this is a big job. And we've got to have everything right in order to do it. And he said, you're not going to do anything until you get your spirit right. And I said, Lord, what is it? What must I do? And he said, you've got to forgive your dad. And God baptized me with a spirit of forgiveness and got rid of the devil's spirit. And I wrote my dad a loving letter. And after that, I remembered every birthday I wrote him. And I told him over and over, I look forward to the day. I asked him to forgive me for my ugly words that I spoke in the first letter that I wrote. 
And God said, all right, now you have forgiven him, and I will save him. And it looked impossible. My dad had plotted a murder. My dad was a skirt chaser. My dad was an uh, ugly man, an evil man. He unfortunately had a handsome face, but his spirit was ugly, and he was engaged in a lot of sin. But yet, God gave me a promise he would save him, and I just held on to that promise, and I held on to it. And he died without me even knowing that God had saved him. But I said, all right, God, you promised. I got to his bedside. He is unconscious with a major stroke. And, but I, they called me in a month earlier. I had a heart attack, and I went then. That time I held his hands, and I prayed, God, don't let my daddy die without the Holy Ghost. He's been baptized in your name, but he's got to have the Holy Ghost. And he whispered, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, please, Lord. There was a change, and his wife told me, he's wearing out Bibles. He just reads the Bible all the time. He doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to go anywhere. He's just reading the Bible. Thank God for it. But uh, here it is now. A month later, he's dying. And he hasn't been able to go to church. He was so deaf, he couldn't hardly hear. And the church he went to, the only church in the little town uh, where you could find salvation, was uh, had a lot of uh, children that were uncontrolled. And he said the last time he went, two little boys was riding the back of the bench like a, a horse, a giddy-up uh, playing cowboy. And he said they, uh, he, uh, when he turned his hearing aid up high enough to hear the preacher over their noise, it made him deathly sick, so his mother-in-law refused, his wife, his second wife, my uh, stepmother, refused to take him back to church anymore. And so he didn't get to go to church. But Lord, that doesn't matter. You know what to do, and you know how to do it. And as I stood there by his bed, I said, now what do I feel? And I found, I felt peace. Oh, this is wonderful. I feel peace. My preacher brother was standing by me. We got outside. I said, what did you feel? He said, I feel peace. He said, sis, he's made it. I said, I know it. He's made it. We decided to believe the promise instead of what we didn't know. We don't know what's happened. But there's a time, there comes time, and that's a part of growing up in him is learning to trust him and to believe him. That's all another step in trusting him and believing him. But let me finish the story. We buried him in July on my youngest brother's birthday. And uh, I began to reach for his wife. I wanted to see her soul say, that's a soul. Uh, my mother had such a wonderful attitude about it. When my mother met her for the first time, my dad got undulant fever and was dying. And he said, get a hold of Carrie. because let her come pray for me. That's my only hope. And my mother went <laughs> and prayed for him. A and Margie kind of apologized. She said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Miss Eastridge, that I took your husband away from you. My mother said, oh, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. Said if it hadn't been you, it had been Sally or Susie or Annie or uh, Polly or somebody else. Uh, it was, it was, that was the way he was. It's all right. And God still loves you, and he loves me, and he loves him. She had such a wonderful attitude. But then uh, I lost my mother then. Lost my dad in July at 84. Lost my mother in December. We buried her on Christmas Eve at 88. And uh, we had to... Stop and spend the night somewhere. And I said, let's go by and spend the night with Margie. I want another chance to talk to her about the Lord. And so we did. And we're sitting there and she said, uh, Sis, uh, every time you come, I want to tell you something. Uh, but uh, I'd been to see her three times in between those six months because I was reaching for her. Uh, and she said, uh, I, I, keep, I just forget it every time. But let me tell you that one week, your dad died on a Thursday, the Thursday before. Uh, I, I got up in the night uh, and I, he I heard him I heard, I woke up hearing him. And you know how deaf I am? I don't hear anything unless it's right in front of me. She was 80. And <laughs> said, I don't hear anything unless it's right in front of me. And, but I could hear him yelling. And I thought, oh, he's fallen somewhere. So I run to the bathroom. He wasn't there. And I ran down the hall, the living room. The hall's not very long. And there he sat in a chair with a Bible in his lap. And he's got his head thrown back and his arms lifted up. And he's praying so loud. You could have heard him a mile away. No wonder I heard him even though I can't hardly hear anything. And I got up close to him to see what he's saying. And I didn't know your dad knew a fern language. I said, he was talking a fern language. <laughs> hallelujah, hallelujah. Six months after my daddy's gone, I was so thankful then that I believed his promise instead of believing the evidence that looked like he didn't make it, but he did. But the secret was forgiveness. No matter what they've done, we have got to forgive 
from the heart. That's a step in your growth. You've grown up another step when you forgive. And let's talk about that step of trust. Trust is the reason I'm here. The Lord spoke to me in 1971 and said, I'm going to close the chapter of your missionary work and send you back to America. And I plainly says, God, don't send me back to those grim-faced people. Let me stay over here. I love it here. I love being a missionary. He said, it's my will for you to go back to America to help the churches in America. He said, they have an acute deficiency and they do not realize it. And I said, but Lord, what is it? My short, brief visits back, I never stayed a year. Uh, out of the 41 years that I was a missionary in Africa, I never stayed a year in America. We'd always come just for a few months and go back. And everything looked wonderful to me. I said, Lord, what in the world? How are they deficient? He said, they don't trust me. They don't trust each other. And their affluence has robbed us, robbed them of trust. He said, I'm sending you back to help the churches in America learn to trust me. You see, uh, I want to just show you something this morning, and I hope you can understand what I'm saying. I have preached among thousands upon thousands of people that their sole possessions, they could hang all the clothes they had on one nail. At night, they unrolled a grass mat and rolled up in a blanket and slept on the floor. And out of the millions of them, I never heard of one case of depression. Not one case of depression. You see, things in our national worship at the feet of the goddess of the economy has been the thing that has brought us where we are. And we are stunted in our spiritual growth because we don't understand the beginning of trusting God. I had to learn to trust him with this thing because I said, God, didn't your will bring us to Africa? He said, yes, you came to Africa in my will, but my will is not set in concrete. And I am sending you back to America to try to help them to understand that our greediness and our desire for things has brought us to where we are. You see, I was raised different. My mother believed in trust in God. God raised her up from her deathbed where when she was dying with 14 major diseases, including acute heart trouble and kidney failure and uh, something bad wrong with her brain. They never did figure out what it was, but it was a, a major problem. A a and God raised her up and made her completely whole in one little simple prayer, and there wasn't even a preacher there. One lady had the Holy Ghost and 11 didn't, but they all helped pray for this 13th one that came to the prayer meeting, and God instantly raised her up. And she threw away all those sacks of medicine, and she raised us without it. We prayed for everything and trusted God. And she always trusted God to show her what we needed in the line of food. I had a little, my little, littlest brother was, looked like dying with pneumonia. Uh, and the neighbors was having fits. Mrs. Eastwood, you better call the doctor or we're going to call the police. She said, you just wait a little bit, just give me time. Uh, and she was praying and she said, Lord, what could I give this child that would help him? I believe you have touched the pneumonia, but now he's still so weak. Uh, and uh, you're going to be shocked when I tell you what the Lord told her, but it's amazing what he can do. He said, uh, give him sauerkraut juice. Uh, and uh, so uh, I said, yuck. You know, sauerkraut juice, you know. we. Then I'm talking about way back depression days. We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and uh, if, if, the, if the, the Lord had said he needs some vitamin C, <laughs> Uh, she wouldn't have known what, where to start or how to begin. We couldn't even afford oranges all through the year, or lemons, grapefruit. We only saw such things once in a while uh, out in the plains of West New, New Mexico. And uh, so, but my mother made, got cabbage and made, she always kept that wonderful homemade sauerkraut. Wouldn't I love to have some of it again? But uh, uh, she, the art died with her. I didn't get it. I got some other things from her, but I didn't get that. But she brought this to my little old brother, a big glass of it, and he just gulped it down and said, give me some more. That was, I found out that that was pure vitamin C. That child was drinking, but God told her what to do. You see? She trusted him. 
Now, we say it like this. Well, if I don't feel better by Tuesday, I'm going to the doctor. Honey, you might as well go on to the doctor because your heart, your trust is in the doctor. Your trust is not in God. Well, I'll let them pray for me. We add that. You know. Well, I'll let them pray for me, but if I don't feel better next week, I've got to do something. You see, we have lost our trust in God. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad, and I'm not condemning you. I'm just trying to point out to you where you are so that you can move up another step and learn to trust God. What does it mean to trust God? Now, look, wait a minute. If you're a diabetic or if you're an epileptic, do not stop taking those pills until the doctor says you do not need them anymore. But now, in everything else, if you can come to this place, the doctor's gate told me I had six months to live. They told my husband I might live for three months. Might. He later admitted that he'd never seen anybody in his office with as low a blood pressure and as bad off as near dead as I was when I finally went to the doctor. Because I'm allergic. I mean, I got grown before I found out I'm allergic to all that stuff. I can't, I can't take anything. And that's why at 78 years old, my hands are just as steady as a rock. My nerves are excellent. See, every headache pill, every t- all that Tylenol, all this stuff that we're poking down our kids and, and, and Advil down our mouths, you're damaging your nervous system every time you take any of it. Why don't you trust God for the headache? Then you'd be, then you'd be prepared for the big stuff when it comes along if you've made a habit of trusting Him. But you see, we haven't been taught this. We have, this hasn't been emphasized. And, but we somewhere, somehow, we've got to get back. Because what's going to happen to America? You're not going to be able to get all that stuff anyway. Then you'll have to trust him, so why not? But get practice right now. All right? I'm, I'm dying with leukemia. My missionary work is over. I remember that doctor leaning across his desk when I said, well, if I take this treatment you want me to take, what will I be able to do? Do, Mrs. Freeman, he said. Your days of doing is over. Someone else must pick up the torch. You've traveled your last mile for Jesus. Ha ha. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> I don't know many people that travels more than I do. A few traveling salesmen beat me, but there's not many. Uh, and that's been, not been just been going on a few years. This has been going on for many years, many years. Because our work in Africa was traveling up and down the continent for 19 years. And before that, we traveled up and down two or three or four countries up and down. Then come to the States and travel all over here. We travel, we travel all the time. But anyway, uh, this doctor says, no more travel. It's, oh, it's over with. He said, now, the states may have some better method of treating. I'm talking about 1952, uh, treating leukemia. But he said, uh, what we do here is we give, you'll, ha- you'll have to have a liver injection every day. If you could give yourself these injections, it would help. And then I'll give you all my samples. Uh, and then come to the hospital once a week for a blood transfusion. That's all, that's what, all we can do. Well... We went by the drugstore on the way home. He gave me a sack full of injections. Went by the drugstore on the way home and bought a hypodermic needle because I'd worked in the hospital and there was no problem for me to give the injections. And I'm laying there and I'm thinking, now he says that when I do all of this, I still will only live. I will not ever, never make it another year. Why prolong the agony? If this is it, this is it. I called my husband. I said, take these uh, injections and this... <laughs> liver injections, and put them in the garbage. Take that hypodermic needle back to the drugstore and trade it for soap. And I'm not going to the hospital Thursday. I put myself in God's hands to live or die. There's no need in, in prolonging this. If, I, if this is my time to go, I'm ready, and let me go and get on out of the way. You, you've got these five children, and you're trying to build a pioneer in this country for the name of Jesus. We'd only been there four years. Uh, and so I put myself in God's hand. And I had two of the most miserable weeks. He said I was in the third and final stage of the disease. I had two of the most miserable weeks of my whole life. He said my muscles were so starved for blood that even uh, all over my body, even in my face, muscles would draw up into knots. Uh, you know what a charley horse is? I had them all over. Uh, and nothing, there was nothing. Sometimes he, my husband would sit by me and rub them and try to rub them out. But for two weeks, I suffered agony. And he said, I'm going to write the churches back in America to pray. I said, no, I'm so disgusted four week, months on the field, I mean four years on the field, I'm going to die, ready to die. Just forget about it. Just don't write anybody. Well, he wrote to a dear friend of ours who had adopted us when we left America. He said, you're my children. 
uh, you're my son, my daughter, anytime you have a need, you contact me. Well, he wrote Pop. We called him Pop. And uh, he wrote Pop a letter, you know, obedient man. He didn't, <laughs> that's what he did. I, he didn't write anybody else, but he wrote Pop. Uh, and uh, two weeks later, I'll never forget, that night, I prayed. I said, God, don't let me see the light of another day. I've had all the days I want. I don't need another one. I don't want another one. I don't want to wake up to another day of this agony. Don't let the sun come up for me in the morning. Let me come to you. I'm ready. That's how I prayed that night. But in the night, I had this dream. Uh, in South Africa, everything is made of masonry because they do not have a lot of trees. In later years, they have learned to plant trees. And so there's more wood there. But at that time, and there was nothing of wood in the houses, hardly at all. Uh, and no paneling or anything. And all of a sudden, I find myself in a house in America. I recognize an American home. And, and I hear somebody praying. And I tiptoe to stand behind him, and it popped. And I heard him say these words, God, you see how Satan has afflicted my daughter there in South Africa with leukemia. I come against that leukemia in the name of Jesus Christ. I come against it with your blood. I come against it with the power of your holy name. And I commanded to leave her body now. And I felt like lightning struck me. And I woke up back in bed in Africa. But I knew I was well. For six months, I had not been able to put on my clothes by myself. My husband had to help me. I couldn't buckle anything. I couldn't snap anything. I couldn't hook anything. I, I couldn't put any strength. I had no strength to do anything. I would still try to lay in bed all day and go to service with him at night. And I'd have they fix a place for me to kind of lay down there to listen to the service because I hated to miss church. I was born loving to go to church. And I, I mean, I'm talking about that second birth. <laughs> I was born wanting to go to church. I, I, you know, what, you, you better be alarmed about yourself if you're trying to unconsciously find excuses to miss church. Well, now, this is a good, good reason. Any service, Wednesday night prayer meeting or whatever, any, any, any time you, are, you find, oh, yeah, now that would be, a, listen, that really, I can't go to church. So, I mean, the clouds of the sky look like it might rain or... Uh, I think I got a headache starting, so I, I, I can't make it. You see, if, if it's easy for you to find excuses to stay away from church, you need to get back to the altar and get another touch of God. Because when you touched him, you don't feel that way. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, uh, I got up and I thought, okay, now I'm healed. Thank you, Jesus. I thank God for my healing. I didn't feel good. I didn't feel strong. I looked in the mirror. My eyes are still sunk in my head and I'm still yellow. An awful yellow skin, but I said, doesn't matter how I look, I believe God. Doesn't matter how weak I am, I believe God. Hallelujah. I trust you, Jesus. It took me a long time to get my clothes on, but I finally got them on, and I held on to the wall to get out to the kitchen. And when I walked in, my husband said, oh, honey, I was fixing your breakfast. I was going to bring it to you. You, you, mustn't, you mustn't get up. I didn't want you to get up and get dressed. I wanted you to rest all day so you could go to church with us tonight. And I could just almost hear it one more time. You know, he didn't say it, but... I knew that's what he was thinking. I said, I'll be there. I've got a testimony. He said, you have? I said, yes, God has healed me. He looked at me. He said, well, now you don't really look healed, to tell you the truth. But if you believe you are, I'll believe it with you. And we knelt on the kitchen floor and thanked God again for healing me. And every day I got a little bit stronger. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And the funniest part about this whole story is that up until that time, I had never had a normal blood pressure. My blood pressure was so low that when I went to the Freeman family doctor expecting my first child, he said, I refuse to take you as a, as a patient. He said, I've never lost a Freeman yet. I don't intend to start with you. He said, and your blood pressure is so low, you will never be able to bring a baby into this world. He said, go find another doctor. Let him take care of you. And I, I had three doctors told me the same thing. Him and two more told me the same thing. And finally... I mean, just one month before the child is born, I found a doctor that agreed to, to, to help me. <laughs> one month. I mean, no prenatal care there. I mean, you know, they, they, they just took my blood pressure and said it's hopeless. All of my life, I had that extremely low blood pressure. God healed me of leukemia, and my blood pressure ever since that day has been 120 over 80. <laughs> Woo, hallelujah. Let me tell you what it pays to trust God. Yeah. And it is the wisest thing that anybody can do. I was telling someone before church 
That doctor gets a cut back every time he writes out a prescription for you and honey, he's going to write them out. They've never tested all what all of these drugs will do when you're taking two or three different ones. It's never been tested. You're being a guinea pig and you're suffering a lot of stuff you wouldn't have to suffer. And besides, let me tell you, if you trust God, he can keep you from getting sick. My husband is a living testimony of that. He tramped up and down Africa in some of the worst places, the most awful places. He'd go with missionaries, and every one of them would come up with malaria. My husband has never had malaria in 41 years in Africa. He said, I believe God will keep me, and he did. Well, now, I have to admit, I got it one time. <laughs> My faith was unstrong as his, but I said, I don't have to have this stuff again, and I didn't. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I just got it once, but he never had it. And we were in places over and over again where everybody there had it. And the same mosquitoes that bit them bit us. Hallelujah. You decide. You know that faith and trust in God is simply a decision. Now you decide you're going to go shopping. Or you decide I'm going to the grocery store tomorrow afternoon. You make all kinds of decisions. But the one decision that we need to make that's most important is I decide I will trust God. And most of us don't even know what it means. We don't, we don't know if trust is a cat or a cow. I mean, we, we, we just don't even recognize what trust is. We are so influenced by the age we live in, an age of skepticism, where God is concerned. Oh, God, help us to understand what it means to trust you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Why is there revival overseas? Those people trust over and over and over and over again. Brother Tecla Miriam, who will be close here somewhere sometime soon and was at the general conference, he and his precious wife would get on a bus and travel two days without enough money to eat on. They'd get on the bus. They'd been fasting and travel. They've only got money to get where they're going. They don't know how they'll get back. They don't know what they're going to do while they're there. They don't know when they'll ever eat again, but they trust God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We want it all laid down, even our young preachers today. Well, yeah, I'll come preach for you for so much. They need to learn to trust God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> I preached revivals where all I got was peas and potatoes and corn. But I got souls, hallelujah. And that's the most important thing in the world. I've never been in this job, in this work, for what I receive. I trust God to supply whatever I need. I don't care whether you give me an offering or not. Doesn't matter. Somebody else down the road will give me a double one and that'll make up for what you don't do. I, I, I've, been, I've been places, you know. I, I'm, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad. But I have been places where I didn't get an offering. No, no bother to me. Charge it up to heaven's account. Glory to God. Hallelujah. And down the road, someone else pays the bill. God knows everything. I trust him. Hallelujah. I don't care how small a church is. I go there. I, I don't care how big it is. If God says go, I go. Makes no difference. And I found out some of the little churches outdo the big ones. <laughs> and the big ones has got a set price that they're going to give. But I'm not in this for the money. I have no desire for money. I always tell my husband, of course, he agrees to this. I said, I don't like money. I get rid of it as fast as I can if I got any. <laughs> but... But you see, the love of money is the root of evil. There's a lot of us, we don't love money, but we love the things that money buys. We've got to, if we're going to grow in the Lord, we've got to get rid of covetousness. Then let me talk a little bit about love. I want you to understand, until God, up to this point, most of us, we love people, it, well, that's dependent on how they act and what they do. And like we got, we had a young fella come over to Africa. He just come on his own. He wants to work for God. He said, but uh, we 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 thought he had a problem. We didn't know what it was for a long time. But finally, when he decided to give up and go back, he said, I, he said, I guess the problem is I love the world, but I hate people. <laughs> you have got to love God's creation. We've got to love each other. When we act nice, when we act ugly. When we're sweet and when we're anything but sweet, we have got to have enough love because, you see, Jesus loved you when you were ugly. He loved you when you was doing wrong. 
He loved you when you was being disobedient and vile and evil. He kept on loving. And he wants us to love like he loved. And sometimes our brothers and sisters in the Lord can sure act ugly. I'm sorry. Shouldn't be. But since we're all human beings, that's the way it is. And that's what I forgot to tell you about making, repenting. Because you're a human being, you will make mistakes. You will make mistakes. And others will make mistakes. But if we just keep on loving. Let me tell you, love brought me back to God when I was a backslider. Running from a call to Africa, which scared me to death, and a call to preach, which scared me just nearly as bad. And I was running from both of them. And I was ugly. I was mean. Ugly way. Going to this little church. Little old tiny building. Just had one door. And they didn't have anybody to play the piano. So they came and asked me, would you play the piano for us? So all right. If you just let me go as soon as I get through playing the piano. And my first plan was not even to stay for the service. But then they said, but we need a song at the end. And so, so that, that hooked me. I had to stay for the service. But the services did me no good because of all of this disobedience and ugliness that was in my heart. But there was one lady there. I'll never forget that day. She was, well, you wouldn't really call her a huge lady, but she was, you know, a mature, well-built lady. Say it like that. And when she would put her elbows out, she could block the door. And when I started to leave, she's got the door blocked. I said, all right, I played your piano. You know, they'd come up to me and they'd say, we've got nobody but you to play the piano. Could you wear less lipstick when you come to church? I put on more. And you think I'm nice, I'm going to tell you. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't any nicer than anybody else, any other sinner. And, uh, but here she is standing there in the door. Come up in her eyes and pull over trickled down her cheeks. I said, well, say it. She said, looked at me and said, I love you. She couldn't have hit me and hurt me any worse. I mean, I wasn't even trying to be nice. I was trying to be just as ugly as I could be. She said, I love you. Every time I look at you, I just feel love come up in my heart. Well, I don't know exactly how it all happened, but I wiped lipstick off on her white blouse and (laughs) cried on her shoulder. And that was the turning point in my life. I didn't get right the next week. I didn't get right the next month. But I was on my way to getting right from that time because that love. I got to see that lady. She's long ago gone to be with Jesus. But I got to see her son this year. And I said, Richard Pippin, I want to tell you one thing. I loved your mother more than any other human being in this world because she was the one that reached for me with love. You're not going to get people saying, you know you're on your way to hell. You know what you're doing is wrong. Of course they know. They already know all of that. You just make them madder and more meaner when you do that. But when you love, listen, let me tell you, you've got unsaved love ones you want to see saved. Start pouring on the love. I'm telling every woman that if you've got an unsaved husband, you start loving that man like you've never loved him before. You, you study and ask God to show you ways to show this man how much I love him. You can save his soul with your love. I've seen it done over and over and over again. I've seen women get so self-righteous that they don't hardly have time for their sinner husband. You're married to that man and you love him. Hallelujah. And if that's your backslidden kid out there, you love them. And stop telling them what they're doing wrong. They already know. They don't need to hear it. What they need to hear is that somebody loves me just like I am. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Never will forget one of my grandsons, 13 years old, showed up at general conference only way his mother could come was to bring him with her. And he showed up with a mohawk hairdo. <laughs> and she apologized. She said, Mother, I, I, I'm so embarrassed. You can act like you don't know him. I, I said, Oh, no, he's mine and I love him. And everybody saw me walking around. And I don't know how many people, I mean, not long ago, and this is several years ago, somebody come up and said, One conference I saw you walking around with your arm around a kid with a mohawk. I said, Yeah, that's my grandson. And that, that grandson needed to know that Grandma loves him. 
He knows, he knows his mother gave him money to get a decent haircut and he decided to get a mohawk and she didn't know nothing about it. And, but he needed to know that somebody loved him. And I just kept loving on him and he's never got another mohawk. He's done some other things, but whatever he's done, he knows this grandma loves him. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And oh, what a thrill I had. It's just four weeks. Three weeks ago today, I saw him walk to the altar. He hadn't even been inside of a church, and I don't know when. But I saw you. He, he led the parade. He was the first one to come and begin to seek God. Oh, he's not out of the woods, but he's on his way. Hallelujah. And love is going to bring him out. And you haven't grown in Christ. You're not growing in him until you've stepped up the step of love. And love is not selective. The love of Christ is not selective. The love of Christ loves no matter and just keeps on loving no matter what. You know, we have actually, we're the only army that kills its wounded. When those among us are hurt or wounded, we should gather around with love and comfort. And I was so thankful to hear Brother Kilgore stand up at the general conference and say, God has put a burden on my heart for our brethren that have left us. And I have written a letter to every one of them and said, Brother, I love you and I miss you and I wish you were back one of us. And he said, we have got to start reaching out for those that we have lost. If there was enough love, we wouldn't lose so many. Let's step up and grow that, mother, that, that level. Grow that level of love. Right by it is the level of compassion. Because you see, unless we have compassion, we have had too much self-righteousness among us. We've looked down our nose at those that haven't yet learned not to do the things that are wrong. That's the soul Jesus Christ died for. And if we would move, were moved by compassion, I've heard children of God go and give a sinner a piece of their mind or one who wants to serve God say, yeah, look what you've done. Aren't you a pretty picture? Uh, and that's not the way. That's not the way. You, they can be won by love. If that little church in Luann, Arkansas had treated me like I deserved to be treated, I wouldn't be here today. But there was one woman there that gave me that love. And I tell you what, every service after that, as long as we lived in that place, which was just a few months later, we moved away. But every time I went to church, that lady came and hugged me and kissed me and told me she loved me. And if I'm playing the piano, and I'd look around and I'd see her, and she'd form it. She'd form it with her lips. And I knew what she's saying. And I'd have to fight the tears again. She broke my heart with her love and got me ready to get right with God because she grew up into that step of love. Hallelujah, hallelujah. There's a step of patience you've got to step up. Now, I know people that they serve God every other way, but they just got to get impatient and lose their temper a little bit. You know, they'll sometimes say, well, my father had this problem. Yeah, your father the devil had that problem. That's how he lost out in heaven. And uh, when you're born again, you're not supposed to bring any of that over with you. You pick it up again because it's gone when you're newborn in him. Patience is another step. Grow. God help us to grow. And you notice that it said, grow in love. Let me just read that one part of that verse again here in, in Ephesians. It is so beautiful. Hallelujah. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ. I was in a church where a pastor, speaking the truth in love, a pastor said to me, Sister Freeman, could you do anything with this dear lady? She is so sweet and she's so precious. But she's hung up on this speaking the truth in love. And she said, really, the love is, is fallen by the wayside. A, lady, a sister will come in with a new dress and she'll say, how do you like my new dress? I don't like it. It looks too much, it looks too worldly. And uh, she said, she calls it speaking the truth in love. And somebody has done something and they'll come and say, well, did I do all right? No, 
No, you didn't do all right. You, you should have done so and so and so and so. He said, can you help her? And I said, no, but God can. <laughs> I don't claim to be able to help anybody, but I know who can. I, I, but she came to talk to me about it herself. She said, I've got this little thing. She said, I just tell people straight. Because the Bible says, speak the truth in love. I said, are you sure there's love there? Is there enough love there? Because love is a cushion. <laughs> uh, love is a cushion. Love makes things go smooth. Uh, and she said, well, they asked me if, if, if I like their dress and how, do, how does my dress look, and I tell them the truth. Well, uh, you could say it's a pretty color, and that would be the truth, yeah. and it wouldn't be quite so insulting. You see, people take this as an insult if you just uh, say things flat and ugly. And uh, I hope God helped her. We talked about it, and she said she's going to try but we've got to grow in him. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And there's another verse here I'd like to read. It's in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, but grow in grace. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, if ever life is too much for you, you need to grow in grace. And those days when everything goes wrong, God is trying to help you grow in grace. <laughs> it's not, the devil's not got it in on for you. You know, we blame a lot of stuff on the devil. Uh, that uh, really, it's us and circumstance and other things. He gets a lot of blame. Of course, he's responsible for enough. But he gets a lot of blame that he's not even responsible for. But we've got to... We've got to grow in grace. Now, I had a pastor at that same little church that I'm talking about. We lived there twice for a short time. And I had a pastor, was a wonderful Bible teacher, known all over the country. His name was Eccles, B.E. Eccles. This is before the time of many of you. But uh, B.E. Eccles was our pastor. And this little town was a small little church, and they didn't have, he didn't have much income, so they had to have a garden. And one day he told his wife, he said, you know, I believe that I have crucified the old man and uh, that I am dead in Christ and, and I don't believe anything can touch me anymore. Well, uh, two or three things happened that day. And see there, wife, you see, I made it through just fine. But the next morning, <laughs> as they were eating breakfast, he looked out the window and saw that red hen going down the road that he, the, the little plants that was just coming up, <laughs> just scratching out. <laughs> She's just scratching everything out. He jumped up, grabbed the broom, ran out there screaming and yelling and began to try to hit the hen. And she was always just one flop ahead of him. And he broke the broom into, into and all the neighbors was out to see the show. It was really neat watching this, watching this preacher out there trying to chase the old red hen out of his garden. And uh, as he came back in the house, his wife, she got amused, but she put her hand over her mouth so that he wouldn't see it. He looked so pitiful, he looked up at her. He said, would you believe that a one little red hen scratched it all alive again? <laughs> I come, the flesh came too. I'm not dead in Christ. I got to go and repent over a red hen. <laughs> Sometimes things like this happen. God is helping us to grow in grace. I want you to understand when everything goes wrong, it may not be because you're out of the will of God. God is doing you a favor. He's trying to help you grow in grace. That's a step up. Hallelujah. You're getting closer to him. And you get that overcome, honey. You've, you've stepped up another step if you handle it right. And sometimes we have to handle it wrong two or three times before we can handle it right. But we're growing and we're growing and we're growing in him by his help and his grace and grow in knowledge of him. There's two ways your knowledge of him is increased. The word and prayer. You learn a lot about Jesus when you are praying in a regular way. Our praying, you know, sometimes we think, well, now I will, um, um, I, I pray, I pray, I pray as I drive to work, and, and I pray while I'm washing the dishes. I pray while I'm loading the dishwasher and loading the washing machine. But you see, there's got to be some time of separation. If you really want to know someone, you've got to spend some time with them. 
There's some more steps of spiritual growth, but I've come to the last one now that I'm going to talk about this morning. You explore this subject for yourself, and you'll find some more steps, hallelujah, hallelujah, of growing. We're trying to get to that fruit level. A, a, a mother whose children have all got married and divorced and all come home again said to me, how'd I get rid of them? I thought when they got married, that was it. I said, honey, you don't get rid of them as long as you live. <laughs> they're always on your heart. They're always on your mind. They're always in your thoughts. Uh, there, there's no such thing as getting rid of them. But uh, we have got to learn how to handle whatever happens to us with the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's one more step. You know, nothing is as selfish as a baby. I mean, he wants his bath, and he wants it right now, and he screams till he gets it. He wants his diaper changed, and he wants clean clothes on. Who made that mess? He did, but he, he, he don't worry about that. And I've never seen one with any remorse because he kept their mother up all night with the earache. I've never seen one that cared one little whip that, that uh, what they have done costs you a lot of money. And, you know, I've had them break stuff that was so valuable. Uh, uh, they're, they're born selfish. And babies in Christ, don't, uh, he didn't miss all of that. It's just me, me, my problem, my health, my kids, my job, my car, my house. We've got to grow into that unselfish consideration and compassion and a burden for the lost. You see, this is the saddest part of the churches in America. When I first got back and realized we're not reaching our community, they're being born and dying faster than we're reaching them. Lord, what is the problem? And he told me. He said, too many spectators in the church. Now, I'll tell you what spectators do. They, they, they judge, they evaluate, they measure everything. Oh, the quartet sang better this morning than they did last week. Uh, the preacher, uh, he didn't preach quite so well this Sunday as he did last Sunday. And every service, all you do is sit there and evaluate. And you're not the one to say how well the preacher preached or how well the singers sang. It's not your responsibility. If you prayed more for them, they both do better. <laughs> hallelujah, hallelujah. But you see, we have become spectators instead of participators. Now, a participator, when those folks get up to sing, I'm going to pray for my brothers and sisters that God will anoint them as never before. That pastor gets up to preach, I'm going to pray for my pastor today that there will be anointing on him that he has never felt before. You see, then you are a participator. You'll make a man preach himself to death. <laughs> Hallelujah. That, that's, I, I, we're going to Ethiopia in, in December, and I'll tell you what, that's the greatest temptation you ever have in your life because those people are just sticking you on. They're praying for you. They're loving you. They're sitting there smiling at you. No grim faces among the whole bunch. Uh, nobody has, has got a, a sad looking, grim looking face. Every last one of them. I mean, they just make you, you, you just pour out everything you've got. But it's awful hard to tell a bunch of people what God wants them to hear when they are sitting there with that reserved stance. Just evaluate. I'm going to evaluate everything you say. Oh, just listen to the word of God. But you see, the worst of the spectators, they are doing nothing to reach that world out there. Now, some of them will say this. Well, Sister Freeman, I tried to witness. I mean, I tried, and, and I just couldn't get anybody interested. Well, you just keep on trying. Jesus didn't stop. Until he went to the cross, he was still reaching. I remember one day, a preacher's wife and I was in the large city of Johannesburg, a city of two million, knocking on doors in the area where they were starting a church. And it was uh, difficult. I mean, some places they put the dogs on us. and Sometimes they sent the kids out to tell us if we stepped inside their yard, they had a gun and they'd shoot. And all kinds of things happened to us. 
And I remember a day that we split up because we just wasn't reaching enough people and knocking on enough doors. And so as I knocked on this door, I could hear that lady coming down the hall and her heels was hitting that hardwood floor like, oh man, this lady is mad. And she jerked open the door and she said, I want you to know I've got my church. I've got my Bible. I've got my preacher. I've got everything I need. I don't need you in your little black book. And she started to slam the door in my face. And ordinarily, I'm a bashful, shy person, and I'd have backed up. But the Spirit of the Lord come on me, and I just stepped forward. And she couldn't close the door. I'm in it. And I put my face right up close to her, hers, and I said, In this big city of Johannesburg, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who do not have a church, who do not have a pastor, who do not have a Bible. How am I going to find them if I don't go look for them? And she just crumbled. She said, Come in. Let me tell you the truth. I used to have a church. I used to have a pastor. I used to have a Bible. I used to have a God. But today I have nothing. And no doubt God sent you to my door. Oh, what a beautiful prayer meeting we had that day. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, you get all kinds of response, but just keep on praying. And keep on saying, God, show me how. Oh, Lord, this looks like a hard nut to crack. Show me how. Show me what to do. Listen, he can crack hard nuts. <laughs> he cracked one. <laughs> Here's one. A hard nut he cracked. And let me tell you, he knows how. And he knows how to make you grow. You don't have to stay where you are. You don't camp out on one step. You hold on to what you've got and move on up. Hallelujah. That's what we want our kids to do. We don't want them just laying around the house at 18, 19 years old. What's for dinner? You know, uh, they're not doing anything. They don't want to cut the grass or they don't want to wash a dish or they don't want to do anything. God doesn't want it either. And you come to church and wonder why you feel dry. Don't get more blessings. Let me tell you how you'll get a blessing. You get out there and touch somebody outside the walls of this church for Jesus Christ. He Grow up into being a soul winner. That's what he saved you for. That's what he gave us the Holy Ghost for. That's what he has touched us for, is to reach out and touch someone else. Will you stand, please? Lord, we come before you this morning as your needy children. We confess our need before you. Oh, God, you want us to grow. Help us to grow. We cannot grow ourselves up. We cannot develop ourselves. All we can do is trust in you and reach out and put us, a helpless human hand, in your great and mighty divine hand and let you lead us on up into the growth that you want us to have, God. Help us to grow up and be fruit bearers for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hallelujah.